Hello, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number 59. I'm Dave. I'm Ashley. We're a couple in Austin, Texas, getting to know each other better, better, and better, and better. Better. You sound like the parquet (laughs) ad. (laughs) By uncovering each other's media and pop culture blind spots. Yes. Each week. Each week. It's not even a weekly show. Each episode, one of us. Bi-weekly? Biennial? Each. We're going to make it through. (laughs) Okay. Each episode, one of us chooses something, curates the program. A media property, I believe, is what I'm not going to use. No. You did it for me. That's right. Um, And it was my choice. Last time you got to choose. This time I got to choose. That's how it works. (laughs) We take turns. So. (laughs) What did you choose, Dave? (laughs) Here it is 24 hours after watching the movie and she still doesn't know what I chose. Um, (laughs) I chose David Lynch's 1990 movie, Wild at Heart, starring Laura Dern and Nicolas Cage. Yes. That's what you chose. <laughs> so the reason that I don't know what movie... Because I, you would ask me if I'd seen Wild at Heart, and I thought you were talking about something wild. So in my brain, they were completely mixed up. In As I thought they were the same movie for a long... like. Wait, so had you seen... Wild at Heart before? I had not seen Wild at Heart. Okay, you scared me. But I like, thought you'd been keeping I it a forgot secret. that something wild had a mo- had a name. They both have wild in it and they're both road movies and they I don't know. So I I one is Demi and the other one is Lynch. Lynch, yes. And they came out within a couple of years of each other probably. That's right, you know. And actually I just read a New York Times review that talked about or, yeah well or, no, the, around about the, the lineage time, of, uh, uh, yeah but well about wizard of oz and road movies that sort of okay. thing um it, anyway it mentions that wizard of oz and sullivan's travels sort of like launched the genre of road movie and that um and then he goes on to talk about um uh, David Lynch, he talks about um, Jonathan Demme, and then he talks about uh, Jim Jarmusch. So those are the... Sounds like I need to read this article. Yeah. And then uh, a Japanese or Chinese director, I, I don't remember his name, um, directed a movie called Ariel. I don't know that movie. Yeah. So we might need to check that out now. So. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so why... Do you want to... Okay. Well, I have a lot of stuff to say well, do you, do you about the movie, do but we, I think you should... you want to hear about me? Yeah, I want to okay. hear what you... why you chose this movie. Uh, f- okay. I'm a, I'm a David Lynch fan. I'm not a David Lynch super freak, but I have... <laughs> <laughs> they probably have stickers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Name but, badges. <laughs> but I'm a card-carrying member. I haven't seen everything he's done. I think this stands out as what I felt was one of the weirdest, most essential Lynch movies that mm-hmm. you hadn't seen in yeah. the lineage of Lynch. Yeah. And actually, I'm not 100%. I think you've seen Blue Velvet at some point. Yeah, just You've once. seen Mulholland Drive. Yes. And most of the... I think you saw the original Twin Peaks series. Yeah, we... I'm not sure other than that. Like, I, you probably haven't seen Eraserhead. I haven't seen Eraserhead. Um, and then... Uh, 
I know I kind of fell out for a while, so I never saw um, what's the one the low budget indie video one he did with Laura Dern before or around. I think it was after Mulholland Drive. Um, totally lost from my brain right now. Huh. Um, so anyway, I saw this movie when I was like, I would say, obsessed mm-hmm. with Twin Peaks. This yeah. came out the fall of um, I think nineteen ninety. Yeah. So Twin Peaks had just run the first season between April and, you know, May or June yeah. or whatever. Um, and I mean, like, I was a huge Twin Peaks, huge Twin Peaks fan. I, mm-hmm. had, I taped all the shows. I had my VCR set up. I had a scrapbook for a while where mm-hmm. I would, like, clip articles from the papers and the Time magazine and all the weird film magazines. And, like, it's lost to history. It's gone. I would probably be embarrassed if I found it. Um, and I had, uh, blue velvet completely like changed my view of like what movies could do in a certain way. And I'd never seen anything like that. It was also the first R rated movie I'd ever seen in a movie theater. Interesting. Uh, I think I stumbled upon books. This is what I've been missing all this time. (laughs) Wait, what? Rated R movies never mind. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just saying, I don't know what I'm saying. Now you're embarrassing me. No, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to embarrass you. I was I'm just, just saying, like, like David if that's Lynch, the first, like, I can't watch rated R movies because I'm not old enough. And then all of a sudden no, you can. <laughs> I misspoke. It's the first rated R movie I went to in the movie theater. Okay. When I was about 16 and okay. technically sneaking in or whatever, yeah. that kind of thing. But what a doozy of a movie to like, yeah. wander into. Like, no, I knew. Mine I, was Boogie Nights. I had seen. Yeah, I think we talked about that before. <laughs> Um, so I was always fascinated with David Lynch. I don't, there's, there's a long story to this. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I've debated whether to show this off and on, but I know you're, I think you're a fan of weird Nicolas Cage performances to a certain extent. I've been to the Cage-a-thon. I (laughs) adore and have always loved Laura Dern and Nicolas Cage. She's so good. Yeah. I really like her mom, Diane Ladd, when they've Mm -hmm. worked together. Her actual mom. Her actual mom. Um, and then, so for me, this film was at the height of my Twin Peaks love, but I didn't love it. Mm. I've, I've always had a complicated relationship with this, with this movie, which is, I, which we can probably unpack and which may, you may want to as well. It's very sick and twisted and disturbing, but fascinating. I don't know why. I don't even know if I can say that I enjoy it or, but Like, it just, it's like, you gotta see this to believe it kind of a movie. Yeah. And I've probably seen it five, five times over the years. Interesting. So, um, and I, but I bet I haven't seen it in about 10 or 15 years. I haven't seen it in an awful long time. So, I don't know. It seemed, uh, I've been watching all week, um, finally finishing up Twin Peaks to Return. Yes, we watched the end of it. And this is just, Wild at Heart is early in pretty early in the Lynch filmography where I think he's still like finding his, what he wants to do with cinema. And it doesn't totally work. It doesn't work completely work for me. It's like pastiche. It's like throwing all the, I'm not, he's not sure about his tone yet. And I think later on when you get to Mulholland Drive and Twin Peaks, the return and stuff, like he's creating really mesmerizing art. I mean, Mm. it's just this immersive, it feels more of a piece. It feels more like a complete work. And and this is almost, I don't know. 
I don't want to, I don't want to go too much into criticizing it now, but (laughs) when I'm just telling you why I chose it. So I don't know. I'm, I thought you needed to see it at some point for all of those reasons. It, you know, there are certain films that just remind me of like a million things. And this does, it's, it's not easy to watch. It doesn't always make sense. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's an understatement. I mean, it's supposed to be a love story, but um, (laughs) do we need to do the nickel tour synopsis for a second? I think so. So, Tell us Sailor and Lula. So we open on um, in Cape Fear, South Carolina, um, which is not ever a good place to start as far as uh, (laughs) books or novels go, I guess. Things bad things happen in Cape Fear. Um, so we open up and it's like some sort of gala or show that, that Sailor and, um, and Lula or Lula, sorry, Lula. Lula, like bebop lula Yeah. Not Lulu, which is something no. wild. <laughs> oh, that's weird. I didn't make that connection. never made that connection before. Lula. Um, and, um, Sailor and, and Lula are coming out and a guy comes up to him and, essentially, you know, whispers some stuff about um, how, you know, he's been implicated in trying to seduce Lula's mother and then pulls out a knife and tries to murder him right then and there. And um, Nicolas Cage, in his Nicolas Cage way, like, goes insane and kills him in a a very disturbing and violent way. And that's our opening scene. (laughs) It's the kind of scene that almost (laughs) makes you question whether to continue watching the film. And it happens in the first three minutes. Well, I mean, so... You know, it. You know, this always. I hate this this thing that they do in movies where you're beating the back of someone's head against the floor, and like that's bad. That's really bad. But then this one goes the step further and gives you like a view of the back of the guy's head afterwards, which is not. <laughs> yeah. So all of the movies that are too graphically violent for squeamish Dave. <laughs> yeah. Have the smashing the head. Yeah, I can't. I don't like. Don't. I can't even. I can't even see. The movie Irreversible, after having read like a description, like I, I'm sorry, Don. I know it's fantastic, and it's all it all goes backwards from end of the movie to beginning. Yeah. but I can't watch that film. It starts with that too. <laughs> no, it just happens at some point. Oh, at, at some point, okay. Um, and then, um, so Sailor gets sent to jail for l- less than two years. Prison, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, Lula waits for him, and when he, as soon as he gets out of prison they get together they're gonna go to california break his parole um and so they take off and her crazy mom wants to keep them separate so i don't know her her mom's like she has about seven different reasons why she wants sailor dad about seven different personalities yeah so she she actually did try to sleep with him in the bathroom she tried to to get him to sleep with her in the bathroom by threatening by black Trying to blackmail him about what he may have seen about... Yeah, the... so Sailor apparently was there on the night that um, the mother burned up Lula's father. But in, he didn't in, see in anything. An accident or he, the, yeah, uh, or a weird d- suicide yeah, attempt. Yeah, that... he didn't see anything. And she just doesn't want him with her daughter. There's like six different reasons. So she's... And then ironically, she doesn't want him with her daughter because he just brutally killed a man in front of her with his bare oh, hands. Oh yeah, that was the problem. 
<laughs> That's what she says, anyway. In self-defense so for the guy she sent out, anyway. <laughs> they hit the road. They break his parole. They're going to go to New Orleans. They're going to head to California, yeah. eventually. And she's got sets of people She's got involved. a private detective who she's dating, Harry Dean Stanton. I love Harry Dean Stanton. He's Harry so Dean Stanton is one of my favorite characters in the movie. A podcast regular. When we started... When is we that were, why you were looking up the... Have we been secretly doing a Harry Dean Stanton podcast? No, I have, a, I have a, I have a theme. Laura Dern is a theme with us, apparently. We did like a whole episode. No, of Laura I have Dern. A, a list of road desert movies, most of which were picked by you, some of which were picked by me, that we covered on the podcast. <laughs> so deserty road movies. <laughs> this is funny because we have the official, you know, premise of the podcast, yeah. but we have the shadow version of the podcast. We're actually That's making, right. We're actually doing. Sort of a, doc, a podcast on desert Actually, road movies. Actually, we're battling evil through the viewing of uh, desert road mo- movies. Desert. Um, it's yes. a battle for the soul of America, told through road movies. Did you realize that just <laughs> not as a podcast movie, we also watched the road movie Lost in America yesterday, the Albert Brooks Yeah, comedy. and I thought about that when they mentioned. There's, I was reading a. a can't remember but yeah there was there was a little they mentioned something in that that was mentioned in 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 these desert movies but if just to before we move on with harry dean stanton i want to put a pin in harry dean stanton since we're talking about it now we have we actually we didn't watch this for the podcast uh let's see paris texas paris texas baghdad cafe which is not not in that but it's He's, a no, no, movie. no. Desert Road movie. Oh, you said not Harry Dean okay, I thought you meant we were doing Well, that's, the Paris, Texas just happens to be a Harry Dean, Dean we Stanton We could do a Harry Dean Stanton podcast. I can pull but out I know the that's what we can that. do. I'd be in, up for that, you know. Um, uh, Baghdad Cafe. Um, weird Desert Road movie. Priscilla Queen of the Desert, which was my road oh, movie choice. Oh, did we choice. do that on the show? We did. Oh, we my did. God. That must have been two and a half and years ago. And then two Mad Max films. Okay. <laughs> and what? You know, just I just don't I'm, think of them as desert movies, but of course they are desert movies. Well, I won't mention this right now because we didn't do it on the podcast. The other thing is Laura Dern movies. So we've done Wild at Heart, Enlightened, which was her series she did with Mike White, and uh, Citizen Ruth, which is my choice for a film where she played uh, a young woman in involved in you know a ba- oh. the battle between the two sides of the abortion debate. Um, so, you know, Nathan Rabin, I think, has a podcast that's just looking at um, Nicolas Cage and... Or is it John Travolta? Or is it both? I can't remember. Well, there's, Cause, the, cause they, they took, they're in, they there's took, several in there, too. Took, <laughs> he took Face Off as the inspiration, yeah. I think. And I can't remember exactly what the concept is. But <laughs> sounds like we could do a Laura Dern podcast. Yeah. We could do a Harry Dean Stanton podcast. Boy, a Laura Dern podcast would be really interesting. Just the range of stuff that she does. And she does a lot. She acts a lot. She's not like... And she's done a lot of really high quality TV. Yeah, too. yeah. Because uh, the the series that we were watching last year on HBO, Pretty Little. No, no. I was thinking <laughs> the same thing, but it's not. It's pre- not Pretty it's, Little it's Liars. It's the adult version of Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> it's basically the same thing with with adults, <laughs> based on an Australian novel with the uh, Reese Witherspoon and the Leanne uh, Moriarty one, and um, the daughter of uh, Dirty of Lisa Bonet. Scoundrels, dirty, rotten, liar people. <laughs> Anyway, Harry Dean Stanton, um, who is dating Lula's mom, and um, he is sent off to separate Lula and 
And in the meantime, he, I guess he's not doing it fast enough. So she gets in touch with her ex-lover who is like some sort of crime boss. Yeah, he's like, Santos. The, lo- he's like the local mafia, Marcelo Santos. Santos. It's like a name from uh, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, something like that. So she also sends him. She's like, you got to kill him. You got to kill the dude. I guess the private detective was just going to separate them. And he was just going to bring other, Lula back, yeah. And so I guess she had two different jobs, and she wanted uh, Sailor to be killed by Santos. But Santos says, I'm only going to kill him if you'll also let me kill the private detective. Okay. <laughs> so they're, they're heading off. They're on the run, kind mm-hmm. of, and hoping to make it to California. Yeah. They have the for, the mother's forces in action trying to stop them. Her, her winged um, monkeys, if yes, you will. Yes, and then they are truly, <laughs> truly on a voyage like through hell or something. Yeah, yeah. So Seven layers of hell sort of circles, thing. Circles, yeah. Circles, layers. That's it's a cake. like a seven layer Seven dip. layer cake, seven circles of hell. <laughs> I never made that connection before. Perhaps we should do a podcast on that. Okay. So I'm a little nervous yeah. when you say you have lots and lots of notes. Well... So I have, I've always had, I mean, this is our first Lynch film that we talked about on the podcast, is it not? Yeah, because I, w- I because I, I knew you'd seen Blue Velvet, which probably would have been my choice. And I knew yeah. you'd seen Twin Peaks, which actually would have been my favorite thing, probably. Yeah. So, um. But which we, we did watch together, but I had sort of seen well, we it. We didn't watch Blue Velvet together. No, no. And then when you. I would s- like to see Blue Velvet You said the other you. day that you'd only seen it once. And then I was like, oh, we should have done that. And said, now here it's too late. Yeah. No, we have to talk about. So I, I had to do it, like I said, because of Laura Dern and Nicolas Cage, and the this and this is probably his most mainstream movie. Dumb. <laughs> this is a mainstream movie. Yeah, it, it made like fourteen million dollars at the box office or something. It wasn't it well. Didn't do it was. Well. It won the Palme d'Or, which you know Americans just yes, love uh, Palme d'Or. But uh, <laughs> was as as often at uh, Cannes, it was booed by much of the audience yeah. when the award was announced. Interesting and. and um, in test screenings, walk out after walk out. 80 yeah, people 80 walked out. 80 in the out, first one and 100 in the, the second. second. It's always the same scene. They were walking out uh, during the Harry Dean Stanton death scene, which he ended up trimming to because that's what was offending everybody. Interesting. Yeah, it, it didn't show. I've never read a description of it, but apparently it was more of a torture scene that was really upsetting okay. and graphic. Interesting. So they. Cut well, it I a heard lot. that the some of the sex scenes were far more graphic too. That they that yeah, ended I up cutting that. out as well. So, um, boy, I just I don't I don't know where to start with it. I actually started my my research on this by trying to see if there was any actual parallels between The Wizard of Oz and this film, like. It had me thinking about whether there were like certain characters that were supposed to be you know, representative of one character. It's not okay. that literal. Explain, it's not, explain you know. Explain for people who haven't seen the movie the something about the Wizard of Oz connection because we haven't really so mentioned it. So they that. mention it all the time. You know, it's it's like a constant theme throughout the movie. You know, they mention, like, breaking down on the Yellow Bick Road. Um, Lula has these visions of her mother riding a broom. Literally dressed as the Wicked Witch it's riding a broom. Riding a broom. Um, we have the also the visual motif of the crystal ball in yeah, her yeah. mother's hand moving across That's right, it. yeah. Yeah, so, so it... You know, and I guess she's the... To me, probably the character that has the biggest parallel with any anyone else... 
you know, yeah, because, I, I, like, you know, the Wicked Witch is always, like, somewhere else and, like, you know, watching from afar or something like that. So I felt like that one maybe has the biggest parallel. I don't know if the book would have had more of that or that it would have been more obvious. Or Not in the book. Uh, not at all. So Interesting. I've, I've never read the book, but what little I've read on it is Wizard of Oz is all David Lynch. Mm-hmm. It came in after the first draft when they were in rehearsals and it was one of those weird Lynch <laughs> like associations where he suddenly made this connection and started la- layering it into it's, the movie. It's very interesting because it, it does play on a lot of like classic Americana that was, you know, people were obsessing over that sort of like 1950s in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, the boomers were starting yeah. to like remember their youth and all of that kind of stuff. And so there was this like saturation of of Amer- of like old fashioned Americana with Elvis and Marilyn Monroe and and uh, the Wizard of Oz and all of that was sort of like tied together. I remember they showed the Wizard of Oz when I was. I don't like to watch the Wizard of Oz anymore because like every freaking holiday when yeah. I was a kid, it's like a special Walt yeah, Disney yeah, yeah. presents or whatever. And you it's know, scary and creepy. Yeah, it's not a fun. So, but interestingly, <laughs> a lot of our greatest transgressive filmmakers like David Lynch and John Waters are totally obsessed with The Wizard yeah. of Oz. Well, they grew up with that yeah. and they're also obsessed with that kind of Americana thing, which yeah. actually is another connection with John Waters. Well, David Lynch also has that like suburban, like not so much in this yeah. movie, but in Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet and all the rest, that kind of Americana 50s sort of thing. Yeah. This time the 50s is channeled by like Elvis and Marilyn yeah. and Thunder and the the car and the yeah. music. Oh, and the, the cars are amazing in this tender, film. The yeah. cars, I don't know, the boots, the snakeskin jacket, I don't even know. It was the Elvis thing was hard for me because like growing up I knew that like Nick Cage has always had an Elvis obsession, like, his whole life. Like, he was a big collector and, you know. So I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't know that much <laughs> about him. But I think this is one of the first Elvis channeling things he yeah. did. Yeah. Well, later on, he d- he, he was he in a terrible... Honeymoon in Vegas. Honeymoon in Vegas movie. Like it's not so good. Not such a good movie. I don't think I've seen it. <laughs> it's not very good. Maybe we should do a Nicolas Cage I podcast. feel like maybe we should watch all the bad uh, movies set in, in uh, Las, Las Vegas. Las Vegas? Yeah. I don't... Well, <laughs> I think we should see more of the good ones in Las Vegas, because yeah. I can think of some that I don't think you've seen. But, I mean, like, so this is all very familiar to me. And then in classic Lynchian style, he's able to combine that in a way that's very understandable as sort of a dreamscape to me. You know, to me, he's he's the master of creating this sort of... I mean, and, like, Mulholland Drive is probably, like, the pinnacle of that, that sort of... where it all comes together, but that, like, things that feel familiar, but everything is strange and wrong at the same time, you know? And it's... Um, well, he spent a career basically transcribing Nightmare on film or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it has that kind of... I was reading a great... Um, I was reading a, a piece, an essay on Eraserhead the other day because se- I've seen it so long ago, I didn't really remember. I just kind of refreshed my memory. And the first paragraph, I think it's Danny Peary in the book Cult Movies, he's talking about how Eraserhead is like having one of those like weird nightmares where your face is like pressed into the pillow and you can't breathe very well. Yeah. And like everything feels <laughs> claustrophobic and you wake up completely disoriented with things kind of half... Well, and or that thing with like things seem so familiar and real that like when you wake up, you think the thing that happened in the dream really happened because it just 
it just feels so familiar that it could have been, you know, I don't know if, you know. <laughs> I feel like one of the things that about Wild at Heart that makes it stand apart from his other films is it feels much more like him making a movie. Like yeah. it feels like I'm golly gee, I'm making a movie and it's going to have an Elvis character and it's going to have the Wicked Witch and it's going to have the, you know, 50s soundtrack and, you know. It seems weird that he did an adaptation at all. Like there's some people when you hear they did an adaptation, you're like, hmm, you know, why would you do that? You know, you got your own thing going on. You don't need to do adaptations of other people's work, you know. It was at the right time at the right place. Yeah. The story was that he, um, I think they were just wrapping the the pilot of Twin Peaks or mm. something like that. And one of his producers, one of the, somebody who worked on the Twin Peaks show, I think one of the associate producers, yeah. um, actually had gotten in touch with Barry Gifford, who he knew or something and wanted to see what he was working on. And he was finishing up his first draft of Wild at Heart, the novel, and there's a couple chapters to go. And he actually wanted to, this associate producer yeah. wanted to direct it himself. And he went to Lynch to show it to him, hoping he could get him on as an exec producer. And then David Lynch said, are you sure you want to show this to me? Yeah. What if I love it and want to direct it myself? <laughs> and he's like, shrug. And then he loved it and wanted yeah. to direct it himself. So I think they bought it maybe without having seen the ending yet. And then he w- he didn't like the ending. So yeah. Lynch rewrote the ending. And, and um, but it, it just, it just dropped into his lap right as they were heading into Twin Peaks, probably between shooting the pilot and, and getting the series pickup yeah. or something like that. Although the cast is, is like a Twin Peaks scavenger. Yeah, it really is. Because that was, and that was for me, probably another reason that was really fun to see. And, and another level of enjoyment was seeing all the Twin Peaks cast well, members. I pop was, up. When we're watching it, I was like, when did this come out? Because there's some elements of it that seemed like he was exploring further some of the themes and stuff that's in Twin Peaks. You so know, so would, the fact that it came immediately after the pilot suggests that he was starting to examine so some of those things before. Yeah, so he's in production yeah. on Twin Peaks and um, has made connections with those cast members, and yeah. then he has that the current collaboration with the composer Angelo Badalamenti going on. Mm-hmm. So he brought that kind. Of, there's some of the music in in Wild at Heart that sounds like like Audrey's theme in the yeah, Twin Peaks yeah. show, and of course Audrey's in it, Sherilyn Fan and. Um, Laura Palmer's in it as the good witch Glinda at the very end. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Mrs. Palmer's in it as the crazy um, uh, uh, woman with the crutch assassin. That's you know? right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Grace Sabrisky. Two, yeah, Grace Sabrisky. I love She's so odd and interesting. What a face. Yeah. And yeah, she's she's great. And her voice. Boy. Is it? It was Isabella Rossellini. Isabella Rossellini. That's right. Yeah, I think she was involved. Was she also in um, Down by Law? Is that right? Is she the actress that's in Down by Law? No, that um, I know what you're thinking, but that's um, Nicoletta Brasi. Okay, that's right. Who was Roberta Benigni's wife. That's right. Okay, yeah. Yeah. But Isabella Rossellini was, of course, one of the the leads in in, uh, Blue Velvet, right? Yeah. She's the female lead, basically. That's right. That's right. And Laura Dern from Blue Velvet. So yeah. apparently when Lynch read the Barry Gifford manuscript, he immediately thought of Nicolas Cage as yeah. Sailor. Like, that's who he wanted. And Laura Dern was Lula. And that's yeah. he approached them and they did it. 
So she's, I mean, she's, she's good as usual. She's just fantastic. She just is, I mean. There's something so she, poignant about the love in her eyes. Yeah. The, the, the love that they have for each other. But I think it's more her because I, I feel like Nicolas Cage is more doing a character than yeah. she is in a way. He never is able to get that human in i don't know i haven't seen everything well, he's done there's not a lot that i've seen that he's able to like probably really touch. leaving las vegas well i was about to say but um it's because we're always seeing movies where he's playing nicholas cage being yeah. crazy yeah so at a certain point obviously well yeah i haven't seen and now Mo- he's just, i haven't seen moonstruck either you know now so. he's just known for doing over the top yeah like third hand takes on that's himself. true so, uh, but you know her. She's just so good. I'm. I'm not like 100 percent on their characterizations. Like yeah. I don't. I mean, like she brings a lot to the performance in the way of, of of her facial and body acting. She's just so good. But there's not a whole lot there. I mean, she has a little bit of a backstory. You know, her dad died. There's that like really flippant way they deal with her rape by her uncle. Yeah, I hate that. You know, that. I uh, and like like the whole reason it comes up is like she mentions some story about her mom telling her not to have sex when she's 15 and then he like flippantly says, "Oh, were you raped when you were 13?" and I was like, "Well, this is a really weird and then way they have to have an awful flashback." Yeah, she has several of it and and I don't know. So that is a little bit um I don't know, it's a little weird. I mean, like, it certainly gives it's sympathy the, for her, but it's it's but a very it's, strange um, way of dealing with it. From the film angle, it feels exploitative or just awful. I don't yeah. know. How to, like, it's not... It's, <laughs> it's not done in an honest way. No, it's, no. It seems like it's presented as... Shock is not the right word, but it, yeah. it's there's no emotion to it. It's just, like an awful image or something or a well you know you know david lynch's strong point is not his characterization yeah i mean so you get in this movie i think particularly everybody's sort of an image i mean it's it's like iconography it's Mm -hmm. um you know i'm gonna have an elvis character and a sort of like i don't know they i mean they've compared i mean she's not really marilyn monroe type i don't know what she is yeah 50s biker chick or something i don't know yeah really. yeah I'm sort not, of like you would see in like one of those b movies and i don't know but they don't 100 percent feel like they're channeling real people no no like you said the backstory and the characterization isn't well, really and, there and who, except who knows what's going on with the mom like she's involved with the mafia she murdered her husband we don't what you know right. <laughs> why and yeah. she's real concerned about her daughter who she's hanging out with, you know. <laughs> I feel bad about mentioning this because we, like, for some reason, whenever we bring up Roger Ebert on the show, we're always kind of slamming how he got we something We love Roger wrong. Ebert. We love but him. I have to say, <laughs> I love Roger Ebert. Actually love, like, a lot of my love of film is because of the relationship I had reading his reviews and watching sneak previews and at the movies and Siskel and Ebert and all that stuff. So I like when I was like my formative years of watching movies, it was alongside his take on everything. So I know it informed my viewing experience and the way I look at movies. But um, like there's a couple of films we've talked about where he gets it so wrong or we feel he got it so wrong. 
Um, but he really has another, he, he, I want you to, I'm bringing this up because I want you to read his review of Wild at Heart after okay. this show at some point. Because he's really, it's really interesting to see a critic struggle as much as he does in writing about a movie or a director that he knows is like respected. But, but he actually, like his first paragraph is like, I have a problem with David Lynch and I am, I'm acknowledging it, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I recognize on the one level that he's a gifted director and yet something about it always makes me angry and leaves me cold and like presses my buttons and this sort of thing. And he yeah. tries to work through it and it's really interesting. He ends up giving, I think he always wrote on a four star um, yeah. pr- review scale and he ends up giving Wild at Heart two and a half stars, but he clearly doesn't like it at all yeah. really when you read the review, but it's really interesting to see him unpack it. Yeah. Um, he talks about the streak of misogyny that seems to be run straight yeah. through David Lynch's work. And notoriously, like he hated Blue Velvet, I think gave it one star or no stars. I can't remember which. Yeah. And was just appalled by how he felt um, Isabella Rossellini was treated. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the character I, that's... I think that, I remember reading that in relation to another... So again, he... Yeah. The, the, the rape and the treatment of women in this film and the the attitude and the and the horrible the horrible scene with um, Bobby Peru Willem Dafoe in the hotel room I almost didn't show the movie at all wondering if that scene was enough to make this not watchable at all and then (laughs) then we watched it anyway because there's enough going for it I mean like I mean, if you want it, because we watched the finale of, um, I mean, just the, uh, the same day or the day before. The we day had before watched we the finished uh, Twin Peaks, The Return. And there, there's another, there's a Laura Dern sex scene in that movie, too. You know, it's very <clears throat> differently directed than, than, than these, yeah. you know, if we're comparing sex scenes. This one focused entirely on her face and, like... Which was not the case, really, in the other one, which was seemed much more male-centric and a little bit, um, I don't know. Grindy. Yeah, grindy, I guess. I, I mean, like, I don't have a problem with sex scenes. This seemed like weird, like, like just like a weird, like, porn commercial in the middle of a of a movie, though. Like, it's like... Oh, you've been watching this movie on YouTube. All of a sudden, there's a... I don't... Not, not on YouTube, but, you know. <laughs> there's, like, a, a poster for a... Yeah, for a, so his job a skin is, show, all of a his sudden. His job is he has to communicate... I mean, as the, yeah. as the storyteller, he's supposed to communicate, like, their love, adoration, and, like, absolute passion for yeah. each other. Well, I mean, who among us hasn't gone on a road trip and, you know... <laughs> In every, every you know, every hotel room. But I don't know. It was a little... I mean, and it's so interesting because you have that. And then immediately after you have these, like, you know, shots of them, like, laying in bed together, talking and smoking. and I love the scenes yeah. of them laying around yeah. in bed talking and smoking. Do we have to do the weird, like, porny, you know, thing to get there? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I'm not a prude. No, I but, know. But... I don't know. I mean, and I don't think that if it had been like, you know, gentle or whatever, that it would have been any better. It probably would have been worse, honestly, you know. (laughs) It's an interesting experiment. I mean, it's like I said, it's kind of a crossroads in his 
movie making. Yeah. It's like he's trying everything. Yeah. He's really throwing everything at the wall. Sometimes he becomes more fixated on another element. Yeah. You know, on just mood or something like that. And this is like he's sitting there with a pair of scissors, like going through old magazines or yeah. something, like throw, <laughs> like throwing shit at the wall, you know? And some of it works and some of it doesn't. Well, yeah, but... a lot of it felt like, wouldn't it be shocking if I had this interlaced with this? I mean, but it already had enough weird elements anyway. I mean, like, there's enough that's weird and disturbing about it without that. You don't even need it. It's like when you it. see a David Lynch movie, though, you, I mean, his reputation precedes him. Yeah. You know you're going to be watching disturbing stuff. Yeah. That's kind of what you sign up for when you watch it. God, William Defoe's character is so, so creepy. Let's talk about Willem Dafoe's character. He plays Bobby Peru. Well, they meet him the in thing um, is... Big Tuna, Texas. <laughs> yeah. And he... It, I'm going to let you talk in a second. But yeah. I just want to say he's one of the most vile characters I've ever seen in, oh, yeah. in the cinema. Well, ever. that's the... Interestingly, I mean, like, when you see Willem Dafoe's name flash across the screen, my brain said to myself, <laughs> he's going to be a villain. Because that's what William Dafoe does. And he does it well. He, he does it when really he's well. He's the goofy high um, guy in Platoon, who's like the good sergeant. I don't remember him from Platoon. Interesting. It's like one of his first movies. He's so good. Oh, I saw Platoon when I was in high school, so. So that has like the bad sergeant and the good sergeant, and he's yeah. the dreamy, like, you know, smoking pot, like, like good sergeant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's creepy. I'm not sure really how he ties in to the... Like, was he one of the hired... He's the hitman. He's the hired hitman. Do you remember? Okay. So there's this business... They showed the coin at some point. Yeah, there's point this in. business where um, the Santos, the mob yeah. guy that the mother's involved yeah. with, um, when she says, I want you to take care of Sailor, and he's like, okay, but I'm also going to take care of Johnny Farragut, her boyfriend. Yeah. And she's like, no, not Johnny. Promise me not Johnny. Okay. He's like, okay, promise. And then he picks up the phone and he orders two hits from Mr. That's Reindeer. Right. Yeah. The weird old guy with the naked lady standing there. That's another excessive, <sighs> stupid thing. Yeah. So, so, I mean, is the idea that rich people just have naked people around all the time? I mean, like, I know Hugh Hefner was that way, but, like, everybody else is Yeah, this like is basically that. Hugh Hefner as, uh... I mean, it's not actually Hugh Hefner. No. It's <laughs> strange old white guy with uh, topless women around him who yeah. orders hits on people. So Santos orders the hit, and um, Willem Dafoe gets one of them. Yeah. But we don't see until they reveal that at the end. Okay. And um, Grace Zabriski and her crew get the other one. Yeah. That's a really creepy so crew. So you see the you have the you have the whatever foreshadowing or the glimpse of the, like the shack in Big Tuna mm-hmm. where the phone's ringing when when about the second silver that dollar. Was, that actually kind of liked that that mm-hmm. sort of foreshadowing. I thought that was really good. <clears throat> I actually, I liked that. Um, let's see what other, other things that I liked. I like the sort of. And and like there were a number of directors who did this. Jim Jarmusch is good at this. Um, is like sort of capturing the sort of southern, like 
not well. I guess it's Southern urban decay, but it's not even urban decay. It's just so are you the, the sort about of the Southern the New Orleans sequence, or in New Orleans, it's throughout the movie. Like when they're in Tuna, there's that whole like you know, it's like an abandoned used to be like a boom town, and now there's all these abandoned buildings and weird that awful agricultural. Motel they stay at yeah, weird the feed ag- store. Yeah, weird the- agricultural, and then like at the end too is I don't know where they are at the end. It must be. Uh, it might be El Paso or something. But it has that sort of, you know, warehouse district kind of like old, you know, agricultural buildings and like mm-hmm. warehouses and stuff like that. And I, I really like that. I don't know. Um, he and his we, people do some really great loca- location yeah. scouting because I always love the locations. Well, it find. reminded me of um, Mystery Train. Oh, yeah. Um, Great movie. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Which I didn't mention earlier, but that made my list as far as like sort of like same sort of vibe or. Well, just, you know, not the whole movie, but like that last sequence there where she's picking him up at the train depot and anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, this reminds me of Mystery Train. I liked Mystery Train. (laughs) Yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad I saw it. It's not my favorite thing that we've seen. Would you like to go back in time and not have seen it? Was it that kind of a movie? No, no. I mean, I've never... I, I don't think we've ever watched a movie on the podcast that I... But like Roger Ebert... Don't give me that challenge. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do not... Sh- no, I've already seen even Dwarf Start Small. I wish I had never seen that film. Um <laughs> They showed me that in film school. I wish I had never seen that film. It actually reminded me a little bit of even Dwarf Start Small, I guess, in a way. The, just the sort of general... The unpleasantness? Like, general creepiness involved. I mean, but like Roger Ebert, I... It's important to me that I might not like everything, but I usually can find something to appreciate about it. And can understand what people who are into it, what what they would like about it. Yeah. You know, but I know I know that about you too. So yeah. I feel like I just had this feeling like you haven't seen all of Lynch or the the important ones if you haven't seen this movie. Whether or not I thought you would actually really like it or not, <laughs> and I swear to you, I don't know if I like it. Yeah, but it's weirdly another strange motif motif in this movie are the like random car accidents and carnage yeah. and stuff like that. And this movie is kind of like driving by the side of the road and seeing a bad car accident and not being able to look away. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of, yeah. It's kind of like that. So, actually, really sad scene where they, they come across the, the car accident in the middle of the night on the deserted highway yeah. with teenagers and, and um, they find the, the last survivor, the girl wandering around, really confused yeah. and like injured and she dies in front of them them. and that's that does mark like a turning point where they actually really go into hell sort of thing like uh lula says i think that that was a that was a bad omen you know watching that that having that girl die in front of us tonight and it's true everything goes gets way worse after that then you end up with bobby peru and the feed store massacre and uh um the his kind of attempted assaults or well actual assault yeah um ugh. <laughs> yeah yeah it is kind of hellish you know when the, 
interestingly, I, I wasn't sure how I felt about it while we were watching, but I do enjoy their, like, weird, like, dance scenes that they did. Like, so the first night they're together. To the, like, weird speed metal dance? Yeah, they go out to the club, and they're, like, I thought they would... I thought they would be like dancing, like, like real dancing, dancing yeah. Or something. Which and then oddly, like in the middle of it, he just decides to sing an Elvis song to her, like yeah. during the it's after during the, the heavy metal concert fight with the guy. Yeah, he was he like, "Do you guys know this apologize. song?" He taught yeah. the heavy metal band. Yeah. You guys know this song, and they sing just a with random him. movie moment, yeah. and he sings <laughs> "Love Me" by Elvis. Yeah, and then that's where you get the. The like, how come you never sing me "Love Me Tender"? And he's like, "Love to Me Tender" wife. to my wife. Yeah. <laughs> so of course, how does the movie end? Him sing "Love Me Tender," which <laughs> I don't know. If... <laughs> uh... So, does the Wizard of Oz thing work for you? Was that interesting? Would I think it's actually one of my least favorite things about the movie. Yeah, I, uh, I don't. To it... me, it's so cliche. To me, it's so cliche. It's just. It's and like the thing is, is like I could even get into it. I mean, and I've never read the original books at all, so like my whole experience of it is the Judy Garland, and and then of course the terrible, terrifying Farisa Balk one that came out years later. <laughs> Return to during Oz. the era when they made terrifying movies for oh my children. God, I've like had the Dark nightmares Crystal. about the Wheelers for like years. Um, <laughs> Sounds like you still do. I, I do. I mean, I, they're more frightening to me than the monkeys. And the monkeys are pretty creepy all on their own. Um, but, but yeah, my, my whole experience is, is, is the Judy Garland thing. So I know that there's a lot more going on in the books. And I feel like I missed out on that because it seems like it's a lot more deep and more complicated and more than the sort of candy-colored thing that we get. I mean, like, I didn't even think of it as a road movie. I mean, now I see it as a road movie because I read that thing, but I never even thought of it. I mean, I guess I thought of more of it as like Candyland kind of thing. Like you have to get to this and then you go to this and then there's the the nutmeg palace and the candy That's cane funny. castle. That sounds and... so innocent. And yet I, I see it through that kind of nine circles of hell kind yeah. of view. <laughs> well, I didn't even I didn't even think about it that way. I mean, but, but I mean, I guess you can see sort of whispers of the more subversive that's there with the sort of like, you know, this Emerald City that there's, you know, the Great Oz is nothing but, you know, an, an old dude, you know. <laughs> but uh, I don't know, maybe I should go back and read the books. I feel like there would be a lot more interesting. And I think you could... I think that the originals probably have a little bit more of the more gritty, some something more of this kind of element than than the sort of glossy Technicolor. But when you get to the point where it's not just like a reference or it's in the dialogue yeah. that you're actually seeing the mother as the witch, you know, on yeah. the broom, and it, is that too much? Is that maybe gratuitous Oz? I th I think so. I th I thought it was a little. I mean, like. There are no other, like, as far as I know, other, I mean, there's, like, Lula has some flashbacks to unpleasant experiences, but other than that, she, there's no, like, weird other thing going on, so that's the only thing. You know, I think that you could have, to me, it was just as ominous when she's looking out at, you know, and 
when you drive those desert roads where like your headlights are only highlighting the 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 weeds, the tumbleweeds on the side of the road. That's pretty ominous. Or when they you see know? there's something up there, like yeah. before they come across the car accident, they don't yeah. know what it is. You just see something kind of gleaming yeah. in the like way ahead in the dark on that that two well, lane highway. Well, it's scary. I mean, like not. It's it's been years since I've been in this position because I don't drive at night <laughs> in rural areas anymore. But I remember having grown up. There are roads where there are no lights. You know, know, it's just your headlights, you know. So, like, <clears throat> I mean, and and if you've got traffic coming the other way, that means you only have to the end of your regular headlights to see. Like, if there's not cars the other, you can put on your brights, which gives you a little bit. But it's a very different, like, your eyes get so tired because you can't see out. You can only see, like, however far your headlights yeah. go. and. You know, it's a whole, it's like a desperate, lonely kind of thing to drive, drive in a, in like that at night. I don't think you even need, um, scary witch ladies in the. <laughs> so does this movie adding as it does to your David Lynch sort of, you know, films you've seen, does this make you feel like I don't need to see any more David Lynch? I got it. Or does it? make you interested to see any of the other ones that you haven't well, seen. I have really come around on him and come to appreciate his work. I mean, because like, I think early on I saw blue velvet and I don't remember my reaction. It may have been one of those times when I was sleepy, when I tried to watch it and I didn't fully get the full, but like the thing that I remember the most is I watched Mulholland drive and I really liked the first you know, I don't know how long. I liked, like, most of the movie. Yeah. And then we got to the end, and I was so fucking frustrated. I was like, I'm done with this. I don't want to deal with this bullshit. I'm done. <laughs> I was very frustrated with the end of Mulholland Drive. But, like, the thing is, is like it's one of those things that I, I still think about. I think about the end of Mulholland Drive. It was a very striking image, and um, I actually don't really remember much about... I've only seen it once. Yeah, I need to go back and see it. I need to it. see it again. It's been 10 years. It's always 10 years yeah. since I've seen something, no matter what it is. It's probably been five years. But I, I remember being so fascinated with the mystery. I don't even fully remember what the mystery was at this point. And then the fact that it just didn't get wrapped up. I was just so utterly frustrated and so i like i was like i hate david lynch you know it was that's funny because i always thought you liked mulholland drive i mean by the time that you and i i i had i had more of an appreciation for that and and for something that makes me think about stuff so well but at the time i think i think people's tolerance for ambiguity grows or it should. <laughs> I think people's ambiguity, uh, you know, ability to handle ambiguity improves with time. And I think I was pretty young when I saw it for the first time and was very much wanting, you know, a resolution or a happy ending or, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. you know. Now I like, I like a little ambiguity in my films, you know. It or feels a lot, it feels a little corny to end with uh, people kissing and singing Love Me Tender. Just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not when you can have like a great ending that um you know talks about um the great battle between good and evil or or whatever you know that's a lot more so to I think about <laughs> the ending would have been they part ways yeah yeah like they almost did and Lynch yeah. was like no this needs this actually needs <laughs> the happy ending this is heading yeah. towards the happy ending so some people will say like 
it's ironic that he gives you the happy yeah. ending. And then other people say, are you kidding? Lynch <laughs> is Hollywood all... Like, he loves Schmalt, like, that, yeah. throwing out that sentiment. You know, like, he he is actually a weirdly optimistic person, mm. even though he, like, spends his career painting darkness and, yeah. and terror and the sick and the nightmares of the world. But there's the... You know, at the heart of that is the soul of that that guy who eats at Bob's Big Boy and writes yeah. his ideas on napkins and loves, <laughs> you know, chocolate malteds and like makes movies that, you know, show his appreciation for the 50s. They're like, so he would say that the happy ending that feels tacked on, like he actually really believed in that ending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, I mean, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, like, mom's still around. I mean, she's a crazy drunk. So who knows what happens afterwards? Maybe it is a yes, little... Yes, but her image disappeared from the... Oh, like, melted right. from the photograph, like the like the w- Wicked Witch yeah. dissolving. <laughs> I've never... I've, I, don't, I mean, you can't take the Wizard of Oz out of Wild at Heart, but no. it's just never been for me. No. And I don't know. It's not one of the things I like. <laughs> Well, I mean, like, I don't, I don't know. It seems like the twisted version of, of Wizard of Oz or the twisted version of fairy tales is like a big deal in the nineties. There were a bunch of them that were like a twisted version, you know, and sometimes they weren't much better than porn and sometimes they were interesting and sometimes they just weren't worth anyone's time. You know, I don't know, you know, I've, I've, I actually have read, can't remember the there's a horror author female horror author i have he was mm-hmm. by my bed for a long time who wrote these really good poppy really, z bright or? no 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 um i can't remember her name it's probably in the other room okay yeah. um but these really good sort of like twisted feminist versions of 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 fairy tales yeah um and those are really interesting and intriguing to read i I know that there was like a version of maybe Little Red Riding Hood, one of the stories that she wrote that mm-hmm. somebody made into a film um, somewhere in that same time period, early 90s, There's late a really 80s, good something. one that I, um, was it The Company of Wolves? I don't know. I think, I think that's it. Yeah. I think that's um, the name of the book. Okay. <laughs> that, that was a great movie and I haven't seen it since then. But yeah. as soon as you said that, I was like, there really, there was a really good. So I think that there was that whole like sort of loss of innocence mm-hmm. obsession that we seem to have in America all the time. Um, but I think particularly there was that sort of obsession with it in the like late eighties, early nineties kind of, kind of thing, you know? Where they were exploring that sort of thing. And sometimes it was done... I mean, like, Jim Henson did that, you know, with um, Labyrinth, which is mm-hmm. kind of a similar sort of thing, which I love, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's also it's also a road movie. It's very Wizard of Oz, now that I think on it, you know. Except it has owls. David Bowie. It has owls and David Bowie. <laughs> if only all road movies had owls and David Bowie. That would go a long way <laughs> for me. <laughs> Well, David Bowie's uh, does his tw- his uh, David Lynch stuff. Yeah, uh, he's in Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, and like I still haven't. They seen brought that, his character though. back for the return, even though he wasn't around anymore. But interesting. They, they used some old footage, and then they had somebody dupe the voice, and it was very interesting. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when we had never done David Lynch on the show, mm. and. 
I probably would have chosen Blue Velvet had I realized that you'd seen it once and didn't really... Like you were kind of interested in seeing it again. Yeah. Because we're now doing that where if it's a movie that we both saw separately at different times or whatever, and it would be really interesting to have a conversation about, we could be open to that. So, but I was thinking... But I came across this one because of other Laura Dern stuff we'd done recently. And... um, But I was also debating whether to just like... You should see Eraserhead. Yeah, I haven't seen And I don't know. Yeah. I haven't seen Eraserhead since the 80s. It's pretty disturbing and weird. Okay. But I think that you might appreciate it in the sense that... Do you remember that Night of Avant-Garde movies we went to at the Austin Film Society? That was pretty awesome. I see it more like it's a feature avant-garde movie. Like it's like just weird 16 millimeter industrial nightmare David Lynch (laughs) <laughs> Proto David Lynch, early David Lynch stuff. <laughs> it's it's it would probably be more fun to see in a movie a midnight movie scene like yeah. that, you know, at the Alamo, than to just try and watch on a TV. So yeah. I don't know. Wild at heart. It's a mainstream movie after all. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it's dark and disturbing and made people walk out of it. You know, one thing that's interesting to me is I always felt like I would. That I have some sort of weird kinship with David Lynch. This is a this is a like I don't a, even know what you this mean. It's a by giant that. stretch for me, but like I have always had this like weird obsession with that song. Which song? Blue Velvet. The song. Oh, you have? Yeah. Like before, and then so like when the movie came out, I remember wanting to see it. I would have been way too young to see it, but like I was obsessed with it because, and like something about the way he uses music. And how evocative the music he chooses is. I don't... I mean, and... So it's... That might be why that that he's grown on me over time is that, like... I don't know. I'm very into this sort of, like, you know, 50s crooner... Modern 50s crooner type stuff that That's he chooses. That's David Lynch all the way. Yeah, yeah. I was very so into that. <laughs> one of the best things about Twin Peaks The Return is how he brought in those musicians to Mm. to close every episode at the Roadhouse. So good. Sharon Van Etten. Yeah. Eddie Vedder came up at one of the last (laughs) episodes. I mean, like, but it's all kinds of, the chromatics are all these little bands that are really interesting in the the dark of uh, the nightclub. Well, and interestingly, we didn't talk about this, but uh, Chris Isaac's, like, famous uh, Wicked Game I mean, like, that was his big hit that everybody knows, um, which, like, I remember the video. I, w- I watched the video for that on um, on MTV, which apparently was interlaced with, with footage from the movie, which the, I don't remember that. David Lynch directed the video, <laughs> and it had I just remember the, the, like, like... The black and naked, white footage. Naked, of, sand-covered model and Chris Isaac walking on the beach is all I remember about that So video. the song is from the movie, yeah. and then it was on Chris Isaac's album that came out at But the time. I always loved that song, but I always felt like real, like it was like a guilty pleasure. Like it was like... I fucking love that it's song. It's a good song. I it's still really like that song. song. I don't know why. So Chris Isaac <laughs> was a San Francisco musician, yeah. so like... 89 90 i had i never i actually never did get to see him perform back then but he used to do the clubs and you know yeah. like a little band doing the clubs in san francisco yeah. you know when i was a teenager so i knew him as like chris isaac 
from San Francisco. And then he had this song and I, I really liked that album a lot. Well, that's the funny thing is like, so we went to a the record, record show. show, the last record show we went to. And like, just as a joke, I decided to look up if they had any Chris Isaac. So we went to one of the, the first thing we went to is huge and like this is one of those record things where like every other record oh, is like $90. It's the biggest like, record show in the country. Yeah. The one that they have here. So so I went through and I found it. I found the Chris Isaac record and I picked it up and it's like $350. I thought it, oh, I, would, yeah. I was going to buy it for like 25 bucks as a oh, joke. Oh I would have bought it for 30 bucks or something. <laughs> no, but Apparently it's really rare because it came out just as CDs were starting to take over and so there I are have very CD. many. Yeah. I probably still have the CD. <laughs> so apparently there weren't that many pressings so it's like really expensive it was like maybe he, it wasn't 350 re- but it was still re- re- i mean i would just buy it on vinyl they <laughs> yeah. should just re-release it yeah it was like 200 bucks or something yeah so i was like so much for my weird joke that i was gonna do no i i, lo- I loved that song and um it, the piece the bit of wicked game that they play in the film is all the instrumental too you yeah. never hear chris isaac's yeah. voice which is interesting because although kinda, my head was filling in all the <laughs> yeah, but it's just, it's during the scene when they yeah. come upon the car accident yeah. in the middle of the night. They're driving down the two-lane highway at dead of night, like you're yeah. saying, where you can't see anything but the headlights. And the that guitar passage, mm-hmm. you know, the instrumental of Wicked Game. Sorry, Chris, they didn't put you in. He has three songs in the movie, I think. Does um, he? Okay. Yeah. But they only use the instrumental bits. All right, I think yeah. that's, that's all I've got. All right, so... Uh, that's, that's it then that's it all right then um i don't know what happened to it uh i blame the microphone yeah. or, or the mixer i'm not sure um so so i guess we've done our number on wild at heart if you agree or disagree you should email us at shutupwatchthis at gmail.com we're waiting to hear from you you can tell us that we're completely full of it and we don't know what we're talking about and uh this is david lynch's masterpiece all of this is very subjective so um <laughs> I think I said I've seen this movie like five times. So obviously there's something about it that I like, even if I don't enjoy it or if it's a hard watch. I agree with all yeah. of that. Um, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks with Ashley's next pick, which I'm sure you haven't even given a second thought to no, yet. I haven't thought about We don't know where we'll, we're going to go. Movie, TV, she's in control. And uh, I'm the one who has to um, get uh, strapped into the lid locks or whatever. Uh, that was an unpleasant Clockwork Orange reference. We're not going to be watching Clockwork Orange. We're not going to watch Clockwork Orange. Okay. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Bye. Bye.